Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, your designated driver and mouth runner, ready to deliver Doctor Who conversation once again here on our free speaking, big thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who, we talk about it all on this show. All views are encouraged and we may even throw in the odd laugh or two along the way. Now and again, it's uh, even intentional. <laughs> so uh, come and step into our TARDIS in this 60th anniversary year with us here on Type 40. Good to be back in reasonably good voice. Just getting over a cold, only a little tickle left. Fortunately for me, I'm sharing the airwaves as always with my uh, eloquent, elegant and extraordinary friend, the one, the only Mr. Simon Horton. Hello, folks. That's, that's quite an introduction. Thank you very much for that, Dan. I don't know <sighs> what to say. I'll, I'll try to be all of those things today. <laughs> yeah, so I've been left with this with this little tickle, Simon. It's very, very irritating. How about you? How how are you feeling? I'm not saying a word at the moment because I wouldn't want to uh, put the voodoo put the <laughs> on it or anything like that. So um, yeah, let's just move I'd... on. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd consign the winter wardrobe to uh, yeah, to the, the very, very back, but I've had to root out the, the chunky jumpers again to, uh, yeah, to connect here with you this time and our guest coming up right now. So we're going to welcome to Type 40 a familiar face to some of you, probably across the whole convention circuit, really, and a legendary name to all of us in the in the Hooniverse, she's a nutritional therapist. I've got to get that right. A health blogger and a guitarist from Somerset, and she's also the wife of our very favourite all-time Doctor Who and fantasy artist. So, Tasha Akalaos, welcome to Type Forty. Hello. <laughs> It's lovely to have you on board. Thank you so much for joining us, Tasha. Dan and I have been talking about doing this show for, for a long time. Um, and the 60th anniversary year is just the absolute perfect time. It is, I think. Yes. And you and I met for the first time um, last year. We, we, we met in, in 2022, kind of just as COVID was actually coming to an end. And we met at Capital, didn't we? April, yeah. April. So, yes, I went down because I was invited to go along and pick up an award for him. And I think I left a little bit of his artwork on Colin Howard's desk. And that's how we met. (laughs) You did. I I mean, I I recognised you from, from, I think, from social media and that I recognised you anyway. And um, I'm afraid I was a bit of a gannet. Yeah, you brought along the poster that I have behind me, which was a magnificent poster that that, uh, Chris Akeleos did for um, the 20th anniversary for the Five Doctors. And I recognised you and it was one of those things where it's really awkward. Do I go up and just say, hello, you don't know me, but, (laughs) but I did anyway. It was lovely to chat and we chatted for a while and you very kindly let me have one of these posters of the Five Doctors, which is going to be framed. It is going to be framed um, and put in pride of place. Lovely, yeah. I've heard your name because I set up all the podcasts for Chris when you did it for him. I've still got all the details, all the interviews that you did with him. And so I kind of knew about you. I knew you were doing a few auditions and a few interviews. And I just hadn't seen your face before. But I think, yes, Dan, I can remember you. Yes, it was a lovely event. And I was very honoured to be invited down there to go and collect the award, which I still have downstairs. It's still downstairs. I didn't bring it up with me, thought to have done. But um, yes, it was a lovely event. 
Now, I'm right, aren't I, in thinking that the award that you were given was for, um, this was by the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, wasn't it? And it was for outstanding contribution to Doctor Who. And Chris was due to take it in 2020, I think, wasn't he? But then COVID hit, am I right? Well, he didn't know, as we know, because it's all very secretive. So he didn't have any idea he was going to get it. I never knew either. I didn't tell Yeah, there you were. I didn't know either, so obviously I was invited probably not that long before the capital event was going to go ahead. I had to accept. You know, the Doctor Who family is very, you know, they're all lovely people and it was, I think it was important for me to go down there and kind of connect with them. And it was lovely to see Jeff Cummins, he was my favourite governor, as I call him, and you know, he's, <laughs> he's so funny. He's, you know, he just kind of sit down and get drunk together in the bar, it's great. Yes, so he didn't know about it. I think he was given the award, he was supposed to go down and get the award in 2020. And then obviously COVID hit. So it got cancelled twice. Yes, right. And then I then got invited down to go and get it. So so sadly, Chris never knew anything about it. But it's a lovely contribution to his outstanding work. So, so he never knew he was going to be getting this award at all. How do you think he would have reacted? Because when we spoke to him, I mean, I think one of the things that struck me about him was that even after all of his achievements and the fact that people were constantly gushing about his work, he was so modest. He was. He was. I think he. Um, I don't think he realised how what an impact his artwork was going to make. Um, I think because he was only influenced around some of the other artists which were creating a lot of the artwork when he came into it, and he was kind of offered it as like a secondary job because he worked for Brian Ball down in Covent Garden and then left and did a few little book covers and then obviously got it as a secondary job. So he, so he stepped in, I think, because obviously Bellamy was offered it first and he, left, he pushed it down. Yeah. So Chris came on board and took it over. And of course, he, he went in and did his first little draft and it wasn't quite right. And then came, came along, didn't have a lot of referencing. Um, and so kind of created this comic book design, which is very much of an influence around, Frank, you know, around Frank's design. And so therefore this kind of, you know, this kind of secular uh, cycle kind of, you know, continued with his influences very much in show in the artwork. So this lovely comic book um, artwork was then, you know, yeah. became part of the Doctor Who world. So uh, I, I, I certainly remember evolved, when we chatted yeah. to, to, to Chris, which is what, a couple of years ago now. And I remember him yeah. saying that Frank Bellamy had been a big influence and that's the kind of style that he was going for. But I think, again, it's kind of a credit to Chris that although the influence is there, Chris very much made it his own. So it, it's not, it isn't aping a style. He, he's still creating his own thing, isn't he? Yes, he is. He, he just uh, loved the comic book artist. Jack Kirby was very, very influential to him and obviously you know frank was too all of that was in his head when he kind of came into the job but he just worked deadlines took five days to do each job one after the other he was upstairs he just kind of cracked it out every you know with every book yeah. he did but because of what was in his head at the time because he was so highly kind of influential that kind of stuff came out so that star came out in speaking for other artists out there, you know, lots of us admire Christie's work and have done for decades. I can say from experience that we're always relieved and surprised when someone actually pays us, let alone the idea that people may give us an award. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So, yes, he didn't know anything about it. Um, he obviously came back to do a little bit more of his Doctor Who artwork 
as part of the release of Clack. So he was behind the drawing board again and did three more kind of imagined book cover. And then that got released as part of the book. He understood the impact of what he did with the Doctor Who world. But for him, for him at the time, he didn't really understand the reference because he because it was a brand new thing to him as well. So I think he suddenly became more involved in the world as he as he then grew and started to meet some of the actors around it, started to do some of the signings and the autographs. And I think then when they told him through through the tandem books that he was getting a lot of fan base mail, that was when it became clear just how important the world was to some of the children out there. To be fair to him, he'd gone on to greater success on a variety of projects after his his initial association with Doctor Who, hadn't he? So one can understand as a creative to keep going, to keep that engine going, Simon. You kind of want to move forward, don't you? Take on new challenges. And even somebody as prolific and as accomplished as Chris, it wouldn't be any different for him, would it? Tasha, I don't know whether you know the answer to this. I've always wondered whether Chris felt a little bit almost irritated is the wrong word. Uh, but for once of a better word, by the fact that, that that he was so well remembered for his Doctor Who stuff, where, whereas some of his other stuff is just as accomplished, if not more accomplished. But it's Doctor Who that keeps on coming back. Do you think there was a degree of frustration over that? I think he felt towards the end that his, his role as the book cover artist was a role that was, in the way that he did it, was something that was starting to die out. And I think he felt the loss of that, yeah. I think in terms of all other artists, he was just as impacted by the loss of people asking arts, artists to do work directly for book covers. And obviously the cheaper productions of book covers came out. So I think he felt a little bit of a loss of that. However, he worked in Doctor Who and he worked in Fighting Fantasy. And there's a big fan base for both of those. Oh, that yeah, fancy massive. Yeah, and that was his love. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do fantasy book cover artists in between some of the Doctor Who work, when he actually kind of walked away from the Doctor Who world, that's what he focused on the most, because that's what he wanted to do. Um, but he but he loved doing, doing the Doctor Who stuff. For him, there were five days of just doing one book cover, one after the other. I think he did overall about 28 book covers, didn't he, in his time? And then there was another free, and obviously commissions on top of that for other stuff. Yeah. So, um, yes, he was highly prolific. I don't think he really understood a lot about what the other artists did until he stepped in things before him and then saw them do, doing their work, which I think he found quite interesting to see this progression. Well, because, again, his, his style is just so distinctive and so unlike, well, really any other artist. As I say, yeah, you can kind of vaguely see the Frank Bellamy influence there. But nonetheless, Chris's style is so distinct, so unique, so unusual. You know, and I remember chatting to him about how he made some of the choices that he made because they're quite out of the box choices. No artist would, for example, put Tom Baker as the star in profile. You just wouldn't do that. But Chris did. Yeah. And that's brilliant. And that's one of the things I love about his work is it's actually so out of the box. It's so unusual. It doesn't really fit into any particular style. Yeah. It's, it's Chris's style, isn't it? It is his style. As a creative if you're if you're somebody who not necessarily wants to break moulds, because I'm not sure anybody, particularly in the commercial sector, can indulge themselves like that. You know, I certainly have never been able to. But the idea that you can think a little outside of the box, but ask yourself the question within a brief, within a remit, okay, they want A, B and C and X, Y and Z. 
but as regards a profile shot or or full body, whatever whatever decision that you creatively make to ask yourself why not you asked him about the pink tardis in one yeah. artwork simon and yeah. there's a, another thing he did with the dalek i mean he didn't quite phrase it like this but i think the general ambiance of it was well why not why not yeah it was in the moment. He always came, he always came across as a bit of a risk taker or maybe a bit devil may care. I don't know. Was he like that as a, as a person? No, he was very. He was a Libra, so you know all that. Yeah. <laughs> so he balanced a lot of his decision making processes. He did. He took risks with his art, but they were but they were risks because he knew that he could do it. He worked really hard at what he did. He, he became obviously his kind of you know his college course was all technical. And so therefore he got trained in some of the stippling and also the airbrushing, which came as very, very, very much in a lot of what he did in his artwork. Yes, he took risks around the Doctor Who. He certainly went in and kind of designed a lot of the concepts and a lot of the book cover and put them on to Tandem's book's desk. And they obviously released them to the publishers. Um, and some of them, they, they weren't overtly keen because he, because he kept the Doctor Who out of it. Yeah. And obviously the word clack was a little bit controversial, yeah. as we know. But on all occasions when they said, where's the doctor, Chris? He went, I'm not doing it again. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> you that, was, that was very brave, wasn't it? I mean, that was quite brave. Very yeah. brave. Yes, it you was. Know, I mean, it was the same. I remember, yeah, the, the clack obviously is, is famous. And I remember, again, t chatting to you about this whole clack. And he was like, well... What are you going to do about it? Because I'm not taking it off. Clear, I don't think I would be brave. I'd be just like, yeah, okay, I'll go and repaint it. So he he had a, he had a, a, a pretty high degree of bravery, didn't he, with that sort of stuff? I think he knew what he was doing, and I think he knew what he what the children what maybe not necessarily what all the time what his what the children wanted. He was certainly he didn't become part of the fan base because he was frightened of answering the letters because he was dyslexic. So he didn't really get an awful lot of, but, but he did. I've got some, obviously, some fan letters here that he collected. So he did get involved in it. And so I think he understood a lot about, he was a child, he had children of his own. He listened to what, what kind of noises they made. And that was where the words, this kind of clack, bang, noise, clack, clonk. And that, that was where it all kind of came from, as well, his own love of all the comic book artists that he was reading, where he learned how to speak English through. So, yeah. uh, you know, his kind of coming into England was really was the point of him actually becoming an artist. If mm -hmm. he played Cyprus, it wouldn't have happened. He would not have been an artist. He would have been an engineer mm -hmm. or, you know, what his dad did, really. And he and because he kind of he had the, he had the talent and the skill to do it. But it wasn't until he came here that he kind of got stuck. And then all his love of all the of all his fantasy and Trojan and Greek and Spartans and epic wars all came into the fray and that's what he drew and that's what remained on his wall and that's how he got into art college through that because mm -hmm. he lost all his portfolio and so he just dragged everything off these walls and just went there you go, look at that and he went is this yours and they went yes and he went you're in <laughs> that was it so quite clearly you know i've got some you know there's some beautiful stuff that he did really old you know in terms of college stuff was just absolutely incredible he knew how to move figures around, even at that age, really young, even before he went into college. He knew how to create action. He knew how to tell a story. And so then when, when he came into it and started to do it as, as a profession, all that came on board. So he so he knew what he was about, yeah, for sure. And he had confidence and he wasn't going to be told really a lot about how to tweak his own art. 
it's a good job he did and it's a good job he didn't care what feedback they were giving him because I think it's fair to say that and this is no disrespect to uh, the people who, who wrote the things people people like Terence Dix and David Whittaker if it wasn't for Chris Achilleus the target line of books would not have, have uh, flourished yes. the way that it did endured to this day and be as fondly remembered as it was and always will be and Open the door, kicked open the door for other artists too. You used the expression Doctor Who family earlier on, Tash. You know, it is a, it is a great big family, and 2023 is a, a big year for us. I say this quite a lot. We're always celebrating something in the Doctor Who world. And, but none of us are Time Lords, and 60 years is a big old length of time. It would be completely unthinkable without the, uh, the contribution. Yes. of your husband, his mastery of that art. And you're going to share some memories together. As our chat continues, I don't doubt. But uh, just a quick moment to remind you that if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice if you know where to look. A whole continuum's worth of reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs and deep dives with all our regular panellists and some pretty awesome guests. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. More about that a little later on, as well as a couple of minutes where we will make contact with that matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast network for a word about all the other cult conversations going on across all those other shows over there. Tasha, does any of this seem strange to you? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, I, it would me. No, I know a lot about the Doctor Who world. I mean, obviously I'm not a major fan. I mean, I was kind of a Tom Baker fan. What? And then I loved, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I loved, um, I loved the Capaldi season. I was, re I was really back into Doctor Who then. You know, I was really watching it. And uh, we kind of sat down together on the sofa and used to watch it together. And, you know, the amount of annuals and book referencing I've got that he always collected throughout the years, I mean, it's unbelievable. But the people in the in the Doctor Who world, they're so kind and so friendly. And I love the artists. I love Jeff Cummins. I love Colin Howard. And, um, you know, it's just all these artists coming up. And Chris going around and introducing himself. And obviously the relationship between him and Jeff was funny. Jeff was always really funny. There's this capacity just to get to know people well because there's this lovely mutual respect, you know, that kind of exists between all the guests and the artists this amazing world which brings it all together and people just connect and just have a, a good time. Every single Doctor event that I ever went to with Chris, I loved, I enjoyed immensely. And I enjoyed being occasionally this friendly bridge that used to happen to introduce people to him. Because obviously people used to be a little bit in awe sometimes and mm -hmm. reluctantly still unsure about what to say to him. And I just used to go along and just, you know, go outside and have a a little chit chat with them, introduce myself and say, come over, have a chat. That I think that's where just kind of making just human beings, they could come along and have a conversation around his artwork and around his, his history. It could be a little bit quiet sometimes. So I kind of, uh, you know, kind of stepped in. Well, I, I certainly got the feeling that, that there was a degree of shyness there with him, you know, when we spoke. And I definitely would have, well, I was in awe of him. You know, I can still remember when I first contacted him via his website but i sent him a message yeah there you go sent him a message 
and pretty much immediately got this message back saying, yeah, let's talk. Here's my number. Give me a buzz. And I remember saying to Dan, I, I literally am speechless. I've got Chris Akilaus's number and he wants to talk to me. It was terrifying for me because he means so much to me. His artwork means, still does mean so much to me. And so just to sort of phone up undoubtedly one of your heroes and say hello, it, it was a big <laughs> moment. And so I get what you're saying, but you're, you're very much a sort of people person. And so you're good at that, aren't you? You're good at, at, at just being that bridge. Yeah, so, so you know, obviously I work quite well. I was always the one that went on and mumbled in the backgrounds and he was the one that kind of gently put his head down and signed his artwork, you know, and I was the one that took photographs. So I encouraged lots of fan-based photographs and pushed him into it sometimes because he was so humble. Yeah. He, Kind of, you know, so I don't want my photograph taken. I was just like, just to kind of like push him into the limelight. Was, was occasionally I had to get him to do it. So uh, yeah, so I was the kind of, you know, the force behind his. Well, it's it is quite strange because because I can certainly remember, you know, growing up as a teenager, I didn't even know who the artist Chris Achilleos was. I just remember being entranced by these book covers as a kid and a teenager, and there was just a word on there which I thought was um, Achilleos. What, what does that mean? I didn't know. And it was, he didn't do interviews in those days. He never appeared in an interview in, the, in Doc 2 Weekly or Doc 2 Monthly. Or Not many people like did, that. did they? Not many people, people did back didn't. then. People didn't in those days. And no. so I barely even knew what he looked like. Um, he just wasn't particularly, he wasn't one of those faces that you knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And I think that came across quite a lot that people knew his name. Yeah. But but didn't know his face. So even when I was doing a lot, a lot of Doctor Who and conventions with him, there was still that that still existed. The name was resonant enough, I think. I think it gave him the reputation that he needed. And so yeah. when I first came across his artwork, because I'm a talking obsessive fan, um, obviously, huh? which was a host of chaos, um, I just looked at the name on the bottom. I didn't imagine him anywhere in England. I thought he was going to be somewhere abroad, American or something, or working... At, Europe or somewhere. I had no idea. I'll meet him in a club in Islam, right in London. Never clue. <laughs> and then I left home to go to college and went up to London and then went down to Slime Light, which is just kind of, you know, club in London, which is punk alternative uh, club, which is lovely. And kind of like discovered through there that he was floating around on the dance floor. <laughs> wow. And, and that's how I got to know him. So you knew of his artwork beforehand, but again, you didn't necessarily connect him with a specific person? I didn't connect with the face, and I, I, and I didn't because I was a Tolkien fan. When we first met, he kind of... I didn't tell him that I had this on my wall when I was 18 years old until about three years before we got together. And then as soon as he found out, that I got this through the post, this lovely little message on the back. Um, wow. That was about three years before we got together. From that point, we just kind of got closer and closer. And... So you literally met through artwork. It's as simple as that. Through my love of Tolkien, I think. I mean, you, you I, I'm, I'm right, aren't I, thinking that you just love your Tolkien stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. To the point of boring. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that I bore people. I used to bore people. I'm a great fan of Tolkien as well, so you can bore me till the cows come home. We're very much in Tolkien country up here. He grew up... Not that Absolutely. far between, sort of between where we are, I suppose. Yeah, literally be between Dan and I. Yeah, it's our whole mill and all that stuff. And the two towers are here, literally just down the road. 
But I, I, you know, you put up a lot on social media of, of pieces of artwork, stunning pieces of artwork of Tolkien. Um, so you, so not only do you love Tolkien, but you clearly love artwork, don't you? Yes. So my dad was a professional artist too, and he worked as graphic designer. So I grew up with paints and needles around me, and um, you know, and uh, so I understood a little bit about my mum. My mum kind of told me a little bit about what it was like to be to live with an artist. And there's a certain, I asked her, quite interestingly enough, because I've got, because I know quite a few artists as well down in the Southwest and obviously around the area, I met quite a few artists. And they have this almost like a childlike quality about them, as though they haven't lost that way of looking at the world. And so mm -hmm. my mum, did dad have a bit of that? Not like, a child, not like childish, but childlike view of looking at, at the world. And I said, innocence. Yes, it's, it's, yes, it's innocence. Almost as though they're seeing things that you can't quite see. Yeah. And um, yes, he did. Chris did too. Chris had um, had a very boyish way about him, which means he always looked at the world through using this quality that perhaps we, when we work in routine nine to five jobs, maybe we lose that. Yeah. He the world and he loved being an artist. I think he really enjoyed the world that he lived in. Nobody knew him better than you did. What was he like as a person? You know, we, 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 what, tell us a little bit about how he was as a person. He was a very gentle man. He understood beliefs. His beliefs were very strong. Um, he was very fair man as well. He dealt with people very fairly. He loved company. But he could, but he also was able to work by himself, and he knew he, he knew what he was about. So he attracted people into his life that that he that he felt something that he had a connection with. Um, and obviously, I kind of came bouncing into his life because we were friends for quite a while, and I just kind of came bouncing into his life. And I think I, I think he he had a lot of friends in his forties because he used to go out down the limelight. And so therefore his age never, he never, he, he never behaved like his age. That doesn't mean to say that he, you know, that he was a childish man or anything like that. It's just he had a very youthful, yes. a very youthful way of looking at the world. And he surrounded himself with people that were artistic and creative and just brought that out of him to have fun. He was good company. Well, that's something that we talked about, Tasha, after we spoke to Chris. Both Simon and I, we spoke to another and said, how old is this guy again? Because of that, we picked up yeah. on that. And, yeah. put, and we worked out, well, hang on, if he, he was doing this in the mid-70s, thought he must be older than we think. And because he was there with his, with his Mac, I mean, we talk about, full of that word that you used, being connected, that's very much the, the sense that I got of him, which is ironic because he was having problems with his Mac that afternoon. <laughs> that wouldn't connect. Imagine yeah, you, the frustration. I, I, I can remember. I can remember, Tasha. Yeah, you were just off camera. I mean, nobody will have seen this, but 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 when we first when we first uh, when we did that first interview with Chris, and I remember it literally took us about an hour to actually try and get him connected on his computer. And yeah, you were there. You were the one that was there, basically doing it. Tech support. For him. Tech support. Sort of out there, so yeah. So I helped him to do a lot of tech support, helped him to build his website, and uh, you know, answer emails. Just really get his head around a lot of some of the, some of the writing things that he thought he couldn't, he couldn't, but he could. And the and this the thing is, I think he kind of came because he came from Cyprus, and the loss of the language has kind of, I think it, I think that kind of shapes his how he communicated through his career. 
which is the reason why the face and name just doesn't fit necessarily with a lot of people. He was very good at interviews, and he was actually quite good at writing. We used to do his email, and like, oh, that's really good. And, you know, so it was just this kind of, you know, just kind of embedded into this sphere of language that actually you really didn't really... Yeah. Do you think that was purely because English wasn't his first language? Do you think he just felt yeah. that yes. there was something there? Yes, and it came over when he was uh, when he was um, you know quite quite young, not too young, but at an age where um, you're just you're just coming and you're meeting your peers, and he landed in grey, cold England, and there he was, this little Cypriot boy. Well, you know he kind of was used to running around all the orange groves in the bright sunshine, doing what he wanted. And suddenly he was um, um, kind of came over with his mom and his sisters and his grandkids and got you know just kind of got pushed into London life really. And the language was something that he learnt by himself through you know comic books. And this is where the where the comic books came into it. And I, I still had all of this thing, all all the stuff that used to collect for all the Bell Bellamy things, like all yeah. the, um, the Sparta stuff you know spartan things so you used to pull out all the centerfolds so obviously when he passed away i kind of found all this stuff going through all these you know the trojan stuff we used to collect which is really which is obviously and also all the look and learn things too yeah. so this is how he learned the language so he was really what what he used to do was kind of try and teach younger people all these little tricks around books and movies that he used to love and he used to kind of sit us down and we used to watch old movies together. I used to read him bits from Tolkien, and we used to sit in the conservatory and I used to read him bits from Tolkien. I used to learn from him through his old movies, and he used to learn from me from my love of whatever, Tolkien mostly. Yeah. I think we just um, had that, I think that love of fantasy helped. Yeah. As well, I think that love of understanding, you know, the myth and how the myth is created. And Tolkien is obviously one of the major foundations of bringing all terms mythology all of our worlds into one works of literature. So I think that was good. So I think I think I understood a little bit of the world that he was interested in. Too. Do you do you remember that very first meeting with him? Do you actually remember much about actually meeting him for the first time? No, because he used to float around Starlight. He was just this this guy that used to float around. Omnipresent, <laughs> yeah. wafting in the air. In in the air. I never, you know, um, what how I kind of met him the most was my my sister really kind of uh, went out with one of his friends for quite a while i can remember ray ray very very vaguely when i was in my 20s being invited over to one of his parties and uh i can remember it just being kind of sat downstairs on his sofas and then being invited up he was showing somebody a bit of artwork i can vaguely remember he was doing the, the house art in i pop into this little room and uh what and what painting does he put out and, and stick in front of me, the host of Brilliant. <laughs> really? He didn't even know. And then, well, of all the paintings that he had, this is the one he pulled out. Wow. So he just popped it in front of me. I didn't say a word. And just kind of went, oh, oh my well, favourite painting in the world. And so just, <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, I'm pretty family. And then just kind of walked out and then just, and then just kind of connected through friendships and just this, you know, periphery. And just found out that actually him and his house was full of his art. Yes, he was very careful around his art, but he wasn't wasn't precious. Precious, about it. precious yeah. that's a good word about it. Yeah. So over the years, there were parties in the back room with paintings that weren't behind glass. Oh. People smoke. <laughs> 
being exposed to loads of tobacco and nicotine, I still have some of them. I had to get them cleaned a little bit. But it d- didn't detract away from him. He, I think he worked very hard in his 20s. Always said to me that he came into himself when he was in his 40s. Um, because suddenly he found friends and social life. And people kind of dragged him out of the house and went down to clubs. And then suddenly he found this club scene, which influences art. So Starlight influences art. And a lot, and also some of the other clubs which came off of that influenced his art. So he was surrounded with all these exotic women who have appeared, who are friends, and they're friends of mine too. Right. Yeah, so he wasn't overtly precious about his art. As I know, this was sold to the the Tolkien Museum, and they admired him, and he respected them. He knew how to treat people, he treated people well, and people responded and liked his company. Do you think you got right down to all of his depths, do you think you understood him fully or were there still hidden depths there that even you didn't to get to him? Because he clearly was a very private man. He was a very private man. I think he he had a very soft way of looking at his life. I think he just wanted to enjoy it, actually. I think that's I think that was the fundamental thing, uh, you know, to be part of something or the club scene. But what he got out of it was he lost the ego. He did have, you know, artists. When he kind of introduced into America, and suddenly yeah. you know, he was introduced into America and um, introduced to and all these beautiful women used to come up to him and go, "Hi, hey, can you paint me, please?" That bored him. He didn't. He wasn't really. That, he wasn't interested in any of that. He really wasn't. It actually put him off. Most of the time, if you lived your life with him, the art even didn't come into into you know. The fact that he obviously bought up most of his referencing was all downstairs, and of course his library of all his referencing and all the artists that influenced him, and everything that came through the release of Paper Tiger, which is the publication of, of his book. He didn't really speak about it in awful lot because it wasn't all part. What he used to like to do was, was pot up. <laughs> <laughs> he liked to sit at the drawing board. He used to love, used to love going out into the garden. He used to love wow, okay. gardening. Yeah. He used to like building and, you know, of course he built his own kitchen in town in London and did all the plumbing and all the radiators whilst he was deadlines for Doctor Who at the same time, yeah. Because usually artists are very desperately impractical, Tasha. I know that I am. (laughs) He was good at building and he liked doing that. And I think that came from his love of being, being, building things when he was a boy and fishing with his granddad and all that kind of stuff. I think he missed that. He wasn't overcomplicated, strangely enough. <laughs> he really wasn't. It, his art is extraordinarily... I'm still seeing things I haven't seen yet. It wasn't about his ego at all. So therefore, it didn't, his ego never came into the art. There was, there was no ego to be had there because he was just having a good time doing what he did. And so, on, again, this is where this humbleness comes across. That he, It's almost like it was it was incidental. I guess he was very pleased that people like us obsessed over it and loved it. But that wasn't the reason he was doing it. The reason he was doing it was because he loved doing it, I guess, is what you're saying. Because obviously he, he came along in the golden age, came along with, uh, so hit the book cover scene in the 1970s. Um, so kind of came out and really resonated with the scene of the book covers at the time. And fantasy art suddenly became into its own because of Paper Tiger at the time. Obviously through the implication of the publisher and through a bit of um, not really supporting the artists overtly as well as 
he ought to have done. Um, Chris was, was was one of the instigators that actually um, uh, took him and closed him down. So fantasy art became very, very, uh, and I started to collect a lot of fantasy art then too. And then suddenly it was on the shelves everywhere and then it wasn't. And a lot of this was because of the uh, bankruptcy of Paper Tiger. Some of the sci-fi books then that were then created, we know Jim Burns then went into a lot of that kind of arena. Chris Moore went into a lot of that kind of arena. Whereas Chris really wanted to do fantasy because he was all about myth, myth and, you know, Trojan Wars and Spartans and <laughs> Greeks, yeah. you know, and, you know, the, the tales. I think he wanted to work more in film. I think he would like to have done that. His personal project was the Trojan War. Yeah. And he completed it. And I found it afterwards. And he never really went through it and spoke to me about it. He did talk to me about it, but he never showed me the drawings. And then I went through it and the conception of his personal project, he'd done a lot of work on it because that was what he wanted to leave behind. Because he did work in conceptual art on several big movies, didn't he? He, he met Ridley Scott, I, I know. He talked to him about Blade Runner. He, but he worked on Ron Howard's film, Willow, didn't he? And then the uh, King Arthur movie around 20 years ago. I can't remember which director that was That was with. Yeah, that was Sam Anthony Fockle. Um, yeah, he did the great film Training Day, which is an incredible film. A lot of people that he met in the film work as well. Um, and they became lifelong friends and... All the artists that I've met through Chris, again, are very much like him. They have no ego, they love company, they like to have, go out and have a bit of fun. <laughs> and they just like to, you know, just to kind of inspire themselves. That that's this is why artists should be around artists. Because they sit down and they talk and they share. The mixture of the sort of the organic and the natural world and, and the man-made world. I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about technology. Human innovation the wheel and buildings and all these things right the way through all those civilizations that swept across the world and, and built all these things. Chris seemed very, very aware of it all. I've no doubt that he didn't study every single movement of it. He just reacted to it in the way that he, as an artist, I think you can tell that through the artwork, he knows where it all sort of interconnects, in, both visually and historically somehow. It's, and maybe afterwards, I think you, you do get this when you talk to some people, particularly artists come to think of it, is that they learn why it connects a lot later. Like you have to go and, you go and learn about something you already know, and it's the strangest thing. You, as an artist, you're doing something instinctively, aren't you? And that's the thing yeah. I got with Chris. He wasn't intellectualising it. He just did it because he thought it was a good idea. And that's yeah. what an artist should be doing, isn't it? Yeah. Because he actually delivered a lot of the work that they wanted to, they distrusted him. So off he went. And then went off and did some more book covers and some more work and then delivered it. How important do you think artwork was to him? In that a lot of a lot of us just do a job because that's the job we do and it's not important to us, it's just the way to pay the bills. Very important, very important. Now this connection between obviously Conan, Robert E. Howard, which he was absolutely, he was a big fan of him. And then this connection with obviously Frank Zetta and Conan, I always look at the stuff that he's done around Conan and think, you must have been so proud to do work for Robert E. Howard, that it was his favourite yeah. writer ever. And, and then obviously Frank Zetta that he admires immensely, you know, the master of fantasy, that's what he calls him. Yeah, he's the one that the, when you talk about top tier artists, is him that people do tend to revere the very, very most, his master of anatomy. And now you've mentioned it, all those influences 
they're the same influences, aren't they? Yeah. Classical. Yes, they are. And again, it's all about how the body moves and how we look at it in the perception and how we can move it into different types of marines. And you can see uh, how he's taken some of Rosetta as occasionally, but the, but the paintings are very different. And of course, what's interesting is we talked earlier on about how Chris had a very, very distinctive style, but actually he had several very distinctive styles in that the Doctor Who covers are very, very different to, for example, some of his fantasy stuff and then his Amazonian women stuff. You know, they're very, very different styles within with a, within a kind of portfolio of styles in a way. So it's not like you could, he certainly wasn't... Um, it wasn't samey. Again, if you look at his earliest Doctor Who covers, right up to his later Doctor Who covers, they're very, very different. That he didn't stay in that one creative place. You mean he he moved Absolutely. it forward? He challenged himself. That's what you he mean. Developed, well, well, he challenged himself. He developed. He changed, but he had different styles within his style palettes. He had different styles. He wasn't a one-trick pony. No, and he. You know, he used all different types of mediums. He liked to test himself. He liked to always try and kind of push his boundaries a little bit and see what he could do. You know, he worked with different types of mediums, which I think most artists probably do. He didn't obviously go into the technical world because he wouldn't use like the paint and the brush. He was quite purist, really. I think he learned that. And I think a lot of, there's still artists around that exist, which are friends of mine that, that are too. And they and this lovely connection between this artwork appearing on the paper and the canvas and how we can how we interpreted and moved through and gained confidence in his skill, which is what you can see through the Doctor Who stuff. You can see he kind of came in as a young man and then by the end of the career he had learned you know, he developed his, you know, through as we all do, as we learn a skill or we learn something artistic and creative. None of it happens in a in a bubble, does it, Tasha? We all and this is whatever creative thing that we're doing you know i said earlier on that you're a guitarist i think i think music is a, is a similar thing I, I think professional musicians or people who just play for their own pleasure bring different things in and so when we, we talk about frank frazetta and, and other fantasy artists but chris also had one eye didn't he on the american market on the work of jack kirby who i know that he got to meet jack kirby and, yeah. sp and spend a little time with him talking about artwork. But that was, again, it was specifically that time, wasn't it? The timing was absolutely perfect. When yeah. he, he came to Britain, didn't he, in 59? And yeah. so it would be two or three years before Marvel Comics would begin, which Jack Kirby was a major part of. But by the mid to late 60s, a massive cultural impact there on international graphic design and illustration that's timed perfectly for Chris entering the professional sort of realm. Yes, yeah, so how he got his book covers was he just walked around some of the bookstores in London, went through them, took some of the publishers' phone numbers and then just phoned them up and got a few little jobs because, because they took a, because they, because they showed him a bit of a cover, I guess, and they took a bit of a bet on them. Um, you know, in terms of the world now, with everything going through, in terms, you know, the art is digitally represented a lot more these days. It would be very hard to find a job like that. <laughs> and it was a golden age, and he, um, and he, and he was, he was very good at it. <laughs> 
Understatement. The very, very best. I've got a quote here from Chris about his work, Simon. You know, earlier on you said he didn't really give that many interviews, and, and you know, you've, you've confided to us, Tasha, that this was a, a humble man, a softly spoken man, and 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 someone who it seems would rather, I suppose, let the work speak for itself in some in some ways. But I do have this quote. He said, "My pictures vary so much in subject matter, just as much as my techniques and materials do." from slick graphic works to figurative dragons and landscapes. Painting technique and skill is important, but technique alone is not enough to create good work. The picture has to be pleasing to the eye. And if it also makes one think, then that's even better. To me, being a painter is all about learning. Each time I finish a picture, I like to think I've learned a little more there's so much to learn. I could live ten lifetimes and still not learn it all. Yeah, I think he felt that to the end of his days too. I think he was always looking at, you know, always looking at uh, YouTube, looking at ways that he could put oil onto canvas a little bit more. Always looking at technique, wanting to sketch a bit better. When we came down here, moved from London. He wanted to go out and just paint landscapes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he just wanted to go out and just sit in the field and just paint some landscapes. And did he do any? Because I don't think I've ever seen any. No. No, because the point was is that that's what is that in his, in I think people's heads is that that's what somebody who's retired would do. Right. <laughs> he wasn't ever retired. He was always working on some level or always a commercial. That I think that notion to him was something that he wanted to break out of the commercial side of art. He just wanted it to be more freer and expressive for him. Um, and I think that's that. So his notion, his um, you know, his dream of being able to sit in the field and just draw landscapes was his breaking out of the commercial side of the art in terms of about the finances. He he's one of really how how many artists can we say have made a living and bought up a family and paid off a mortgage and owned her own house by working in art. And Chris did. It was commercial and it was work and it was to provide an income. But he was extraordinarily good at it and it was, all, it was the only thing he ever wanted to do. There was nothing else that he wanted to do. Therefore, he was extraordinarily involved in the creation of his work. But I think one thing that was always dominant about Chris is I think there was a couple of occasions, at least one occasion, that he, I, think, I think a lot of people have heard this story <clears throat> about how he did a piece of artwork and went into one of the publishers and put it on the desk and he hadn't really thought he hadn't really done a lot of art because he thought it was just a little a job on the side and he wasn't overtly going to put a lot of his effort into it and then he put it on to the desk and the publisher said we know you can do better than this Chris and even though it was a job which was a small job in comparison to all of the major jobs that he had he walked away, and that and that changed the perception about how commercial, how about how he was going to approach every single job. He took on the jobs, without exception. If sometimes there, there were quite a few occasions when he took on jobs and then missed out on other jobs because he'd taken, he's already committed to some. That's that's an artist's life. Sometimes that's what you do. You miss out on some mm-hmm. higher paid jobs because you've already accepted something else and committed to it. He never broke out of his commitments. He always actually honoured those commitments. So, so you know, in terms about money, it wasn't it wasn't a driving force for him, um, and he learned through that experience. However, smaller job was always to do the best that he could 
but the best artwork that he could actually deliver on, on the table. That was one of the pinnacle moments for him. Do you think he did look back on it and think, yeah, I did a pretty good job with most of that. Maybe I dropped the ball a couple of times, but no, I'm proud of that. Or do you think, was he constantly, was he still striving for perfection? Always. I think, yeah, I think that sat at the heart of everything that he did, really. On his drawing board, there's, there were quotes around all of that. He used to write everything down, <laughs> you know, and just kind of quotes about wanting to attain this element of perfection. But did, it, but did he at least feel that he was actually quite good as an artist? Do you think he recognised that he was quite good? Yes. Good. I, I, I would like to think he did. I really would like to think he did because it's so important to so many people. You know, it would be quite heartbreaking if he kind of thought, I just, I hate this stuff. I don't get why people would like it. I'd like to think that he knew he, he was actually quite well, good at what he was Simon, doing. do you remember? Do you remember when we spent, we spent a good half an hour, didn't we, going through pieces? And yeah. he said to us, Tasha, you know, so what is some of your favourite pieces? You know, what? And, and Simon was saying, oh, I love this one. And he'd say, I was never happy with the nose Didn't on like that one. one. And, then, and then I'd say something to him like, oh, Chris, this one's incredible, the power here. And he'd go, no, no, I never got that right. Didn't no, that right. And it wouldn't matter. Whichever we were talking about, there, <laughs> there were a couple where I think the fa his silence probably said, yeah, I was happy with that one. Yeah. But some of our favourite ones, <laughs> like, we wasn't having it, Tasha. No, that, I think that was him as well. That's, that's him looking at his artwork with, with, a, with an artist's eye. He went back and retouched quite a few of them. So um, he, he retouched the painting here about six months before he passed away. And it was just literally just changing the costume. So so if you, so there's dates, there's two dates on quite a lot of the paintings. Because he produced a special piece of artwork. So, so say for instance, a lot, of the, a, lot, a lot of the stuff that he did for, for the glamorous side of the artwork, which is men's only, um, obviously, he had to represent them in in a way that was a little bit, you know, titillating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I call it glamour work, Tasha. Glamour work. <laughs> um, but because of his own love for costumes, he then redesigned them for his own eye and gave them costumes. There's different releases of the paintings in some of his books, which I which which I've still got the paintings downstairs and on the wall, and it's all you can see where he's brushed it all out. He did that quite a lot. Yeah. Did you ever find it difficult whereby he might bring a piece of artwork to you and say, what do you think? And you were thinking, no. No, because he was a commercial artist, so he never <laughs> brought it into that side of the arena. He wanted to talk, like, say, for instance, if you wanted to talk to somebody about perhaps he was going to do like something to do with the release of Clack or the Doctor Who calendar, he used to find people like David Howe because David Howe's came from a big fan base and then suddenly started to produce books and editions. So he used to reach out to people in the commercial world. He never used to kind of take the painting out and go, right, Tasha, I've just done this. Um, what do you think of it? Just in case I went, oh, no. <laughs> but, but he never felt that need to do it because he was a commercial artist. Um, it wasn't something personal. Understand. It was no, I understand completely. They hammer when just when I went to college, they hammer this out of you by making you go through a, a crit session where everybody pins their paintings, their designs, or their illustrations across a wall in front of sometimes 30, 40 other people, and you get to watch and listen while, while it's, completely, it's completely right. eviscerated in front of your eyes. It, uh, it does knock it does knock that out of you, so I can I can definitely relate to that more art for the ears and nourishment 
for the soul here on Type 40 now. On a good day, that is. And here's our friend Kev to fill you in on the on the method that we use in making sure you get a concentrated stream of great conversation covering all those geek culture universes out there, courtesy of all our friends across the Fandom Podcast Network. Tasha, Simon and myself will be right here when you get back, I promise. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast, we cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast, covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show, our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU podcast, discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. and tantalized you there and we can even clothe you too there's merch to match all of those shows including type 40 if you head over to tpublic.com search for the fandom podcast network and that's where you'll find a store full of all the team colors for all of those shows on everything from phone cases up to t-shirts and enormous tapestries seeing is believing treat yourself treat your other selves all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain so everybody wins. I'm back here with Tasha Akaleos and Simon Horton talking about our memories of the magnificent work of, of Chris Akaleos, what it meant to us then, what it means to us now, and Tasha's life with the man himself. You mentioned creativity earlier on there, Tasha. I was wondering, you know, we mentioned about you, you're a, a guitarist, you, you play a musical instrument, but are you an artist yourself? Do you draw, do you paint, do you, do you go down that road as well? I did when I was in my quite young. My dad was a, was an artist, and I can draw, but but because I because I play the guitar, I don't want to extend my my kind of skill sets. Because if you draw, you've got to really work it. It's you know it doesn't come by natural talent. You've got to really kind of address it as a proper kind of you know, creative force. And I spend enough hours on my guitar as it is. I'm thinking about doing a bit of painting, maybe as I get a bit older. 
You also come across to me as a very sort of grounded soul in that I know your your home is important to you, your home environment, the things around you. Your little haven, I'm guessing that's quite important to you, isn't it? Well, we kind of, I kind of um, moved out of London, came down here for a little bit more of the easy life um, and just a little bit more, a little bit more getting out and being a bit more walky and a bit more exercisey. Unfortunately, COVID hit when we came when we came down here. So we just got down here in 2019, got out, and then COVID came. A lot of that kind of stuck him in and he sat behind the drawing board again. So unfortunately, you know, he didn't kind of um, get out of that. But yes, it's, that's important to me. Um, and it was important to him too, this kind of, you know, just getting out, just uh, living a little bit more of a simple life being more experienced and uh, not kind of spending money on stuff, just being around people and having like social, yeah, our friendships were important to us. And, and your, your wedding looked absolutely amazing. We decided to get married, obviously, and we got engaged in Cyprus uh, when we went over to collect a Cypriot award for him. So we got engaged in Cyprus. He said to me, you know, do you want to, do you want to go into the jewellery and we could discuss the ring? Wow. I, I was turned around and went, Okay, let's, okay. <laughs> and um, very, very small affair, very, very intimate, you know, just between us. And then just kind of stayed in Cyprus a little bit and then came back uh, and then got married later on in the year 2018. So I was looking for, we were looking for like a venue, we certainly didn't do the church way because you both weren't interested in that. Try and keep it as low-key <laughs> as possible. Chris knew this family in the East End that, that runs this amazing, used to be part of Soho, Chris Brosey, yeah. uh, yeah, which is um, God's own Yard. And um, Chris, Chris unfortunately had passed away very early in his 50s. Um, so Chris knew him, was a big friend of his. Um, and I just, I was sat upstairs in his studio next to him and I was just going through a few little things and coming to a few ideas about where we might get married. And, and then suddenly God's own junkyard popped up and I went, <coughs> nicked him in the ribs. And I just said, Chris, look, Chris is perfect. He went, yeah, perfect. So obviously, because we knew the family, we just kind of spoke to Lynn Bracey and, and her lovely sons. Got the date set and got all the, it was lovely going down there, got all the wine sorted out and everything and kind of involved the family. So Joe, his sister, really kind of got on board. We went down for this little day out together and, well, I found my dress, and then you know, which was amazing. Your dress, you look fantastic <laughs> in that dress, Tasha. I love that dress. So yeah, it was lovely, and 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 his sisters got involved. You know, so Joan, Billy, who did the flowers for us, and and did all the help to do the table lays, and I bought all the silk covers and everything like that. And we all went down to family and made it all up, and then kind of worked until about ten o'clock the previous night, and then got married the next day. And it was the hottest. Wow. It was the hottest day of the year. So I can remember kind of marching up from the, you know, from one of the little um, rooms where I had to get interviewed. You had to get interviewed. You know, you are who, who you say you are. Um, and then what <laughs> I did to, to, you know, to go up and meet him, and he was stood at the inside the building, and I just kind of came around the corner and marched down. You can see that photograph. I'm marching down, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. In the photos, it does look kind of perfect. It looks exactly the kind of wedding I would expect for yeah. you and Chris, because you know you're, you're artistic people. Yes, it was lovely. I've actually got a film of the wedding of us getting married at the front, saying our vows, and it's beautiful. 
you can see he's really, really emotional, and I was really nervous. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my god. You, you look, you both look so happy, so genuinely happy. We were, really, yeah. we were in love, you know. Yeah. You know, we fell in love quite quickly, actually, because because we knew each other quite well. And uh, every single time we met each other, he didn't, um, we kind of met at my sister's home. We used to come round and, you know, we used to sit beside, we sit together. And every single time we saw each other out through other friends or my sister, because he used to come around and see his friend. Um, just used to sit and just flirt all the time. <laughs> it took us years to get together. Um, <laughs> we quite clearly liked each other, and it just took us a long time to get together. Did you change each other's lives, do you think? Yes. Um, he made me aware of myself. He gave me the gift of knowing myself. He, 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 he taught me patience. He was one of the most patient people I've ever known in my life. When I came along, I, I was pretty non impatient <laughs> and, you know, quite hyperactive, I think is the word for me. Okay. And he just, he taught me how to slow down and um, be more patient. He centered you, maybe? Yeah, I think he he taught me about myself. So, um, so after the, so I know myself a lot more now because of him. And I think that's the gift that he gave me. <laughs> um, and through, through him, I gave him adventure, love, humour. <laughs> he was my best friend. I think he found. I, I think he was. He was looking for that connection, and I kind of came in, and I was. I was a good partner. I was a good partner on more than one level. I was good for his business. I helped him with his website. I was good with people. And I think we just worked very well together. I think I think I always said we were meant to be together. We were meant to be together. And I think we came together at a time when I was meant to come into his life. And I will always say that. And um, I think he knew that too. Do you think it makes it harder or easier because of the fact now that with it, with sadly, he's left a hole in your life does it make it harder or easier knowing that his artwork is still out there and you're going to keep on being reminded of his artwork just because it is ubiquitous, it's out there? Is that a good or a bad thing for you, do you think? Does that help you or hinder you? Good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, I talk about his art all the time. <laughs> I, I, every single time people come over, I talk about him. He's, he's just... Um, he's just... He's given me this... Knowledge is one about art, perhaps this, this kind of uh, in-depth understanding a little bit about how, why his art resonated with me and also with the other art, other people out there. I'm, I'm very grateful that he's left that behind. I'm very grateful that I can continue to talk about him. I'm very grateful that I can learn more about him since he's passed away. So I read more about him, about his background, about his history. Um, you know, and just kind of finding out a bit more about seeing paintings that I never even knew that he did. This amazing amount of work that he did, and these book covers uh, that he did. So he did an amazing amount of work. Incredible artist. You know, yeah, the importance is enormous, but it's not just Doc Two fans. He, as, you, as we've said, he, he had a huge body of work covering a lot of different styles and genres. And so he's got a lot of different fans out there 
from a lot of different sources. Not, you know, by, by no means is it just Doctor Who fans. White Snake <laughs> fans love that album cover, don't they? Cover, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you do you have some sort of control over his legacy um, and the use of his in you know? The Doctor Who artwork in particular is, is constantly being recycled. We, only a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at there's a new CD coming out that is using the artwork from that they did for the Amazing World of Doctor Who book, and, they, and that's been recycled. Do you are you contacted about this at all? Do you have any say at all over the legacy? When he first passed away, obviously I dealt with a lot of with with, with all the paper actually around the estate is. His taxes and other things like that that had to be paid up. So I contacted BBC because there were outstanding payments, obviously owed and things like that. So I dealt with that. That was part of of that was all the audio stuff that had actually come out. I'm working on Clack as well with his daughters uh, just to do just to do a re-edit with a few extra testimonials from his family, his daughters and myself. Wow. That are going to be uh, in. The new edition of Clack. It's going to be issued as a softback in April, we hope. Brilliant. I'll be advertising that. But his daughters own copyrights, so they own all the reprinting of everything. And they are starting to, I think they're starting to work out. I think, I think Doctor Who stuff will be coming out, but they're still trying to get their heads around, uh, trying to get his artwork out there in a way that, is, is, that they can understand. Because they, they, he's got such a such prolific amount of work because he was a commercial artist, he never spoke to them about it in the same way that he never really spoke to me about it. I was just involved because I was. Uh, and of course, I did his website, so, you know, I knew about mm. I think there's trying to find their feet. But the business will come up when it will start to work. I've still got some of his, you know, some of the, some of the sign stuff that he did. There's not a lot of stuff, um, sign stuff that he did around the Cardiff edition. The experience, things we've signed, a few prints. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've still got those. Yeah, so his family will be taking on the legacy because it is because because it certainly is quite a legacy. And certainly, I, you know, I remember I remember coming across all of the all of the prints for sale at the Cartoon Museum when there was that exhibition there in two thousand and sixteen. Did do you did, can you remember much about that Cartoon Museum exhibition? And did Chris kind of enjoy? Was he was he surprised by the response? He loved it. He loved being around um, his. His peers is, is the one I think obviously because Jeff Cummins always calls him the governor. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. always this lovely little thing when I was working when we did the London Film and Comic Con, which I which Jeff always recites in the Doctor Who interview, and I saw it in Athen where he got on his hands up on his knees beside Chris. And Chris just looked down at him and just went, What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just, just kind of basking in your shadow. Governor, I think. Get up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he loved it and you know we didn't know obviously the piece of he was going to show up it was a bit of a surprise and he loved it he got him back into the artistic nature of it all again and he was talking to people that he had been been around in the industry for for years David Howe in order to bring some of his artwork down um, because obviously Chris sold all his old Doctor Who Target book cover artists when he was young yes younger and um, so, so to get that connection by talking to people his artwork down and then to see his artwork all together i think yeah it made his eyes shine (laughs) absolutely and what was interesting for me particularly going to that that exhibition was that was the first time ever i had literally been able to to look you know up close to any of the original artwork that he'd done 
and I have to be honest, it brought in, you know, I think, I think everybody knows how much I love those, uh, those Target book covers that he did, but it gave even me a renewed appreciation for them because suddenly you were seeing details within there that never came out in the printing process. I'm yeah. delighted to say they've come out in the Clack book. Yeah. But on the time on the Target book covers, you couldn't see the tiny little details, the nuances that were there. Uh, you, you know, the thing that I remember more than ever was on the Revenge of the Cybermen cover, where for the first time ever, I could see a tear uh, coming out of the corner of the Cyberman's eye. And you, I've never seen that before. Yeah. And so so to be able to get up literally that close to them was, was just a revelation for me. And, and because they do mean so much to me, those covers, you know, it was like being in, in the company of, of, for me, you know, the most important works of art on the planet. Forget the Mona Lisa, whatever. This was it. This was it. <laughs> Obviously, uh, for Doctor Who fans, he remains the most uh, important illustrator associated with our favourite series, yeah. establishing that target line of, of books at WH Allen in the, in the 70s with that signature style there and still so much admired and imitated right up to the present day. Here we are in the 60th anniversary, as you said, Simon, those reissues and, and re-offerings are all on the way. It's constantly surprising me, so I can only imagine how you must feel about that, Tasha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th you know, obviously his artwork um, is going to be part of Doctor Who world for a long time to come. I'm going down to the capital again to so you know that so that connection between me and the world exists still and so that kind of you know obviously doing events will then become important too as time flows on it takes time after people particularly when you've got in state all, all, all this kind of you know, this legacy and his daughters are very busy right now <laughs> they've got the jobs of their own to do and other lives of their own to get along with so you know it just it, it takes time to understand a little bit about the world of his art particularly if you haven't been involved in it before. So a little bit of patience, I think. <laughs> Does it feel odd for you almost to sort yeah. of, that all these years you literally have had to kind of share, Chris, as it were, with the fans who, who love his stuff? Yeah. Perfect, lovely. Which is why I came up with the idea of testimonials in the back of the track. It was my idea. We did so many conventions, so many events and festivals with him. That's all I heard of his lovely stories and you know, people used to come to me and just talk to me about how important his, his, his art was to them, his book covers were to them and gave, gave them this sense of escape and also these stories about going through some difficult times in their childhood and about how yeah. they lock themselves away and look at their book covers and I used to hear this such a lot but I turned around to him at one point and I said um, Chris, I, Chris I always hear these or babe <laughs> I always hear these stories where you know we get people coming over and they keep on talking about how much importance your book covers were, how they used to lay them out, there's any visual kind of reference they had at the time, and um, how important it was to them, and what escape you gave to them, and what love they had for it. And I said, I think we need to get some testimonials from people. So I, so I started to do it, and I started to um, say to people, do you mind if, if your name, obviously around, you know, consented data and all that kind of stuff, and I got them to send in some emails. We then spoke to Sean around Candy Jar, he brought up the idea that I, that, that I thought about the idea, and then Sean just took it and ran with it. And then, of course, testimonials went into Clack, um, and and that's the bridge that I felt was really important for his artwork and the fans out there. And that kind of provided that lovely uh, link to yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and the way you just described it, yes, that absolutely is my case. For example, I can remember as a kid, I was a loner, I was an outsider. Uh, Doctor Who was, was my world. But at the time, the window onto that world was Chris's covers. Because, of course, once you'd watch the television program, it's been and gone. But Chris's covers, I could literally sit and pour over them to my heart's content. And I did. You're right. We all laid them all out and just kept looking at them. It was it, it was an obsession. It's like looking through them all through a different, a, the yeah. same, but a, diff, a different lens almost. It was yeah. obviously the way, that, the way that Chris had related to it in a very sort of, to, as a storyteller, you said it right at the top of the show, he was a storyteller. And it was like being retold them in slightly different way in a remixed way in a through Mm -hmm. a very particular pair of eyes Mm -hmm. any of those old stories that if you watch them now on television i'm always looking at them through the filter of chris's (laughs) artwork because it is so indelible simply because that was all i had for so many years that was what we had of course those stories get told to their children and you know all their nieces or whatever and everything kind of continues and then it's just lovely to see these young children come up with their, with their, usually dads, actually. I used to get people coming up to me and kind of, you know, evaluating, almost diagnosing the books. I used to stand with them and have these lovely conversations with them for like 20 minutes and just go, you need to write something down about this. Your knowledge is just incredible. And it's just like, wow. It just absolutely blew me away. Just, just, just So witnessing all these, all these testimonials and people speaking very personally with, with the other people in their lives, with their children or, or even their parents, I, I don't know. It's a cross-generational thing. You, you hear all that and you can sort of soak it in and, and enjoy that. But I understand that you've also paid a, a very particular kind of tribute. So I wonder if you could explain. Because obviously I'd had a, had a personal grief. This is a wicker set, um, and it's one of the only ones in the UK. So it's actually created by one of the members, who one of the members of Fantasy Forest. It was this lovely festival that's run up in Gloucester. It's there to allow people to put uh, um, tributes, memories, people put ashes of their loved ones in there, any hopes or dreams towards the future, any love that they want to bring out into the universe as a message to send out. And so it's very those, spiritual, very spiritual thing. Yes, it is. They didn't know I was going to put Chrissy's ashes in there. They just asked me to be a torchbearer. And so they invited me to the event because, I, because I'm friends with them and it's a lovely festival. And I'm friends with them. So I got a phone call and I was invited to be a torchbearer. And uh, on, on the phone call, when I accepted, I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm actually intending to put some of his ashes into to the flames and they said oh okay so obviously you know they didn't know about it and when i did it what happened was i just went around and i got friends i got loads of friends who go to, to the festival and i just spoke to them really because the first time they'd really get to me and they asked me a few stories around him and stuff and i told them and i put some of the ashes into the as my own personal tribute to our lives together and the worlds and the, and the type of people in the worlds that we connected with. So moving and just so, so spiritual and just loved it. You know, when the wolf went up, you could hear this howl going up from the crowd around you. And, this is like, and I just, I knew, obviously, these ashes were in there. I put his ashes right into the centre. Also got his friends that were important to him, like Terry English and Southworth and 
other artists that are connected with him through events like this over the years, who were his peers and respected each other, to put their own little messages onto the box. I just find it very moving. It's giving me goosebumps now as you're talking about it. Yeah, I've never heard of this before. Um, no, this fan quite like it. And I just think it's just a beautiful thing. You know, you see, you see so many people doing so many different things with ashes, and that's the first time I've ever heard of anybody putting some ashes in a in a wicker wolf and burning them. And it's just so um, so beautiful, so poetic, so romantic. What a way to remember an artist like Chris. It's just it's just beautiful. It's brilliant. You know, and all credit to you for doing this. It's magnificent. Well, I, I, when you're invited to be a torchbearer to one of these beautiful events, um, I think I think I think to not to have placed some of his ashes into the wolf was part of uh, these fantastic and beautiful events that people created for us. A bit Viking, it's a bit mythology. You get people coming along who live their own lifestyles. You get Viking little Viking villages all set up, you know. And he he loved the show, so he attended the show. We both attended the show together twice. Once in Stanford. Oh, I didn't realise that. Oh, wow. So he knew the show. 2018 and once in Stanford, On the, the first year of his death last year, I went up to Glastonbury Tour and just took a little, little bit more of his ashes. I've still got some. Um, and just let them out into the wind after telling, saying what I wanted to say to him and let him out into the wind. And that feels to me is it's right. I think I think Glastonbury, for everything you think about around Glastonbury, it's still a spiritual centre. And so therefore my husband is part of the air around Somerset and is based around the tour, which is perfect. Beautiful. And it's really generous of you to share some of that with us in this conversation. Just here with us, it's very, very touching. I just can't thank you enough for sharing some of your, your memories and all of these stories about one of Doctor Who's ultimate storytellers, one of the, the craft, the, the art of illustration and design, one of its absolute masters. I mean, I can think of numerous people, you probably say yeah, they're, they're peers of Chris Akaleos, but I can't really think of anybody that certainly I consider to be anywhere above that which Chris achieved in pursuing his, his ambition did he see it as a calling? Or was it? A, it wasn't just a career, was it? It was. Was it yeah. as deep as a calling? It was something he simply had to do. Yes, I think he could see himself doing nothing else. So um, I think he always knew. As I said, in Cyprus, it would have been different. He, he would have been the man of the home. His dad and his grandfather dies very quickly, very close to each other, and he's, and he's quite young when his dad dies. So obviously, he couldn't take over the, you know, the male role of the home. But he would have been he would have been the provider and, and therefore would have done something completely different. The move to England was the, was the thing that really made him aware of his art. But that's all he ever did when he got here was just draw. There's, there's so many pictures. Paintings. And I suppose when something happens to a person that early in their life and takes us off in such a radically different direction, it's, it's, I suppose it's virtually impossible to speculate, uh, speculate about a life that one could have lived. Because yeah. you'd be there, for, you'd be there forever. Wouldn't you? It's better to live yeah. your life, live the yeah. best life you can, in, enjoy the relationships and the connections that one can make. We, I think we all hope to leave in, impressions, don't we? Just on the people around us and be thought fondly of. Words like legacy, and maybe they get overused in 21st century a little. They've got that kind of feeling of hyperbole about them. 
but mm-hmm. I genuinely think that that Chris, the name Akaleus, and that un- unmistakable style, and the That's smile crazy. that his work puts on people's faces, it's almost no other artist. You know, there's a lot, lot of special artists out there, not just in Doctor Who, but generally speaking, that affects people's lives, doesn't it? Art is a companion to a, a lot of us. I think Simon and I certainly, when we first started making these shows, there's nothing we would geek out about for longer well, <laughs> than the art of Chris Akaleo. So it's been, well, it's been a great know, pleasure and, to do that with you. And, and I think it says it all when, you know, we've been doing these shows for a while and the very first person that we interviewed was Chris. He was the he was the one we chose to say right. Okay, if we're going to start interviewing people, we start with Chris. Start with um, the governor. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's the right thing to do. And the one thing that I think is fantastic is that Chris got to see his plaque book published, and we know that was a massive success. And he got to see the the, the fans looking at his work at that Cartoon Museum exhibition in twenty sixteen. <laughs> but I feel that ultimately. He absolutely did get it. I think there was a time when he didn't get it, but I think he did ultimately get how loved his stuff was and how important it was to people. Do you think that's fair? Yes, um, yes. But as I said, it never went to his head, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he kind of went and he spoke about his art to artists. That's connection between always... Uh, I've got lots and lots of photographs where... Um, parents or youngsters used to come up to him and because they're going to art school and he used to give them little bits of advice so that kind of you know and just talk over things he used to love talking about art mm. and you know and that kind of connection with other people who felt the same passion last as well that you got to talk to him and got to do an interview with him because we never really knew that this was going to come around the corner no uh, and I mean, we were talking about doing a second interview with him again. I, I remember just talking yeah. to him um, uh, about he he was up for doing a second interview and he was going to do it on video. And so so we were just thrilled by that. Yeah, plans but, in place. He was going to uh, try and use, I think, the last Turtle Comic Con we did together. Uh, he's met up with, uh, again, you see those same faces around all these conventions. He's wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this, uh, and then. Uh, Closest guy again who used to do fancy figures, really good figures, and got and was in the process of, of trying to get some more of his artwork done in 3D representation. And wow! That's, yeah, he has, uh, and I think he wanted to get a little bit more of that done. Now, isn't it funny? Isn't it funny in the way Chris was just as sort of fanatical as it were, in the same way that we were. He had the people that he admired, Absolutely. just as we admired Chris. You can you can kind of tell there's something extra, extra special and it pulled him, it got him. Um, so which one of the artists that I've got up on my page there's that extra special quality that really shines and Chris's work shined. There's something about it. Yeah, Could I think it's fair to say it shines. I think that's that's the perfect end description of it. It shines. It shines. We've been speaking about Chris Akaleos, his work, his life, and all in the company of his wife, Tasha. And uh, yeah, you said, you mentioned earlier on, Tasha, that Clack, the candy jar title, that's coming out again. When can people expect to get that? Where should they keep an eye out for news about this new edition with these new testimonials? Well, hopefully Sean, publisher, um, tended to get it out for April. It's not, there's, you know, there's going to be a few changes, a few additions added. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously some, some extra testimonials just from his daughters. I think one of, one of his grandchildren 
He's going to put one in there as well. And myself. That's the plan. And you mentioned your uh, the capital event through the Doctor Appreciation Society. Is your calendar filling up now with various things you've got to do and places you've got to be? Yeah, because I work as well, because I'm a functional medicine practitioner. His studio is literally just through that door. And I'm just, I'm, I've only really just started to go through the business stuff and kind of clear everything down, taking time. And so, yeah, so kind of clearing my headspace, I think, is where I'm at. Um, and I'm just going to kind of hang around and just make myself. You, you hung around last year and it was lovely to see you there. And pe- pe- people appreciate you. You meet all sorts there. of disreputable characters, don't you? <laughs> I met Simon through that moment. <laughs> and I spoke to Jeff coming, so he's coming down. I mean, you know, to see Jeff, I, you know, I saw him at the Chance Dicks tribute, which is lovely last he's year. A, he's a character, isn't he? He is a character. Colin Howard and his wife, beautiful couple. It's a, it's a niche club, isn't it? Doctor Who target artists, You are, they are a niche club, but you are all very close, which is lovely yeah. to see. We are. And Jeff got a little bit pissed, I got a bit pissed, and we ended up laughing all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jeff Jeff has been put on, on the list. He know, you know we're coming for you, Jeff. We're coming, coming to speak to Dan and Simon. You can run, but you can't hide, my friend. But that... <laughs> That's the old girl starting up and calling time on yet another edition of Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast. I'll be back with another one soon, but uh, look out for them wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40, type40.podbeam.com. We may be rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbay, that new app, uh, Amazon Music. My God, that's that's really good. I'm just getting to grips with that. I think I might prefer that to Spotify. The jury's out. If that's all too much for you, just head over to the Podbean app itself. You can also find us on the Fandom Podcast Network too, over on the Master Feed, loaded up with all those treats for your ears. Never mind on the weekly. They've got you you covered pretty much daily. So please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows. With the FPN, maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this why not reach out to us through our social media that's instagram and twitter at type 40 doctor who and if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time extra-dimensional chit chat step into the type 40 facebook group over on facebook that's where you'll find a regeneration upon regenerations worth of doctor who fans there talking and celebrating the classic series of Doctor Who, including the target line of books and those unforgettable artworks that Chris brought to us back in the day and that we still fasten up on our walls now and see turning up on audios. All that's there and we're reveling in new Doctor Who and anticipating all new Doctor Who there too. So come and find us in the Type 40 Facebook groups. You can email us to type40 at gmail.com there. Uh, Tasha, have you got any contact details that you'd like to drop? Any social medias, places that people should keep their eyes out for or anywhere to direct us to? The website, all that. Well, obviously, the candy jar is going to be a publication that's going to be coming out soon. Not much else, really, kind of ongoing at the minute. It's still in, you know, still has, still has some quite big... Work, some- works in progress. Yeah, works in progress. Simon, where can people find you on social media? What, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? They can find me on Facebook under the Hoonatics if they want to come and say hello and share geeky stories about Target book covers. 
we have been known to go on. We have been known to go on about this, haven't we? And you can find me over on Instagram or Twitter as the Spacebook. I'm wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS in movies, TV, comic books, and even now and again, real life too. I have a real life, Simon. I, I don't no, you know. People struggle no, to believe don't. this, but no, I, I do. It's all out there. Tasha, <laughs> thanks again. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as, as we have. Thanks for your it company. Has, it well, has Simon. been a pleasure. We really, really do appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. much. Thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. It's been lovely. And thanks to you for listening. We always have the time if you have the space here at Type 40. But that's it for this time. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>